0: Hello and welcome to industry elites on this podcast industry elites very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries.
1: Growing up in Dallas, Texas, John Wilding has not only watched the city grow, he has helped it become the home for many internationally recognized companies.
0: After serving in the United States Army, he returned to Texas to start his college education, Southern Methodist University. He then went to law school at Rutgers and graduate school at Harvard.
1: He found his professional niche in mergers and acquisitions, and after 20 years, he still finds immense fulfillment in what he does. On this week's episode of Industry Elites, we have mergers and acquisitions lawyer John Wilding here with us today. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great.
2: Good morning. Nice to be with you.
1: Yes, we're super excited to have you Uh, and obviously to hear a little bit more on the insides of what it really means to be a mergers and acquisitions attorney and how you really got to where you are. So to start us off, um, we have one question for you. What does a day in the life of a mergers and acquisitions lawyer look like? Well, it's
2: busy and it's fun. I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs that have built successful businesses. And because of that, they've got you know potential suitors approaching them about trying to partner with them on a go-forward business or just buying their business outright. So, um, you know, often my best clients are sold and, and that's quite rewarding, but it also means that I have to network quite a bit and get out and you know get my own deal pipeline and so I'm quite active in networking in the community and those kind of things
0: how would you find the best method for a lawyer to get out there and to network is there um, kind of you know like is there system set up for this or is this something that you is there a LinkedIn for lawyers? yeah exactly
2: <laughs> well it's a great question um, when I'm representing entrepreneurs I found that all businesses do two things they file a tax return, and they have a bank account. And so I do a lot of my networking with the regional accounting firms and commercial bankers, because their clients are the types of companies that I want to represent. Uh, and that's on the sell side of it. And on the buy side of it, I've kind of developed a separate network of private equity professionals and people that Um, cater to investors and people that are investors. Sometimes my uh, seller clients make a lot of money and then they become buyer clients. And so in some cases it comes full circle there. But to specifically answer your question, I I network pretty hard with the accounting firms and the banks.
0: Okay. Um, So you just kind of mentioned there um, how you have, you know, clients that kind of turn full circle. They could be a buyer and then they're a seller. Um, How would you describe the best way that you obtain clients? Would you say most of them are kind of word of mouth referral or do you get a lot of um, just kind of cold call tractions like, hi, I need a lawyer? How does that work? Well,
2: it often starts with someone that's built a business and they start thinking about succession planning. They start thinking about you know, hey, I've had a lawyer to help me with, you know, some tough situations along the growth of my company, but I've never had a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And most cases, the substantial portion of their net worth is tied up in their own business. So they take it pretty seriously. They've never done it before in most cases. And they realize that, you know, it's not a go-to-court practice. It's a It's not adversarial in the sense that litigation typically is. So quite candidly, um, most people that are going through a sale process, they don't have what they need. I kind of float in the middle. I'm at a very large law firm, but I do focus my practice on the middle market. And I think that a lot of business owners feel... Like the law firms have left them behind. You know, often uh, people that own businesses have within their network other people that own businesses and they'll ask for recommendations. So that's part of it. They'll have someone ask them that very question, you know, who should I use when I sell my business? So that's kind of the ultimate compliment is when someone you've represented uh, has had success and and they're willing to recommend you within their network.
1: So it sounds like you have like the ultimate balance there. As you said, you have the resources of being part of like a bit of a bigger firm, but then you're also specializing and catering to like the middle scope of businesses. So would you say that, like, do you find that they gravitate towards, maybe towards you and your services due to the fact that because you focus in on those?
2: Yes, it's tough for business owners to find You know, really skilled, competent lawyers in in M&A because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we're all lawyers, we're licensed, we all look great, our bios all look great on websites, so it's really hard to decipher, you know, people that uh, spend the substantial portion of their time in the M&A practice versus dabbling. It's also hard to tell whether or not the partner that you're talking to is actually going to be fully engaged in the project. So that's something that I do. When, when someone hires me, they can feel very confident that the majority of the work and the time spent on the project is gonna be me. Um, I may have people help me, a tax lawyer, real estate lawyer. You know, if there's a, you know, a lot of documents that have to be reviewed real quickly, I'll bring in some younger corporate associates, but they're hiring me for the most part. And the vast bulk of lawyers are litigators. I would say only about 20% of lawyers are transactional lawyers. And then within that, only a small percentage are actually mergers and acquisitions lawyers. So, you know, I help people buy and sell companies. That's what I do full time. People call me about a lot of different things and You know, because I work with mid-sized businesses, I often serve in that outside general counsel role because a lot of my clients don't have an in-house legal department. So they'll call me about all sorts of things. And in those cases, you know, I'll get them with the right person, either within our firm or somewhere else. um, And it's sort of a concierge service in that regard.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's definitely beneficial, I'm sure. And like you said, the connection and how in the interworkings work with being able to have the resources to connect your your clients to other individuals because you trust them, I'm sure just adds the trust level that they have in you. So that's, I'm sure, definitely beneficial. So to kind of go back a bit into why you got into law. So previously, you had served in the military, correct? And then you did your bachelor's degree. So what ultimately in your journey drew you then to want to become a lawyer? Well,
2: I did enlist in the army in high school and I had that experience and that, uh, helped me to mature rather quickly. Um, and then I, uh, went to community college and, you know, that was somewhat of an extension of high school for me. Um, but you know, I worked hard and I got admitted, uh, into Southern Methodist University in Dallas where I live. Uh, and Southern Methodist University is a, you know, a beautiful private college in Dallas where it's obvious that um, you know if you get an opportunity to go to school there, you you're really fortunate. So I picked up on that and because of that I didn't want to just kind of go half speed uh and so I put a lot of energy into that. And once I had some success, I started thinking about what I might do. I was a liberal arts major. So liberal arts majors pretty much have two choices. They can teach or they can go to law school. And so I went to law school and I was one of the only people that really enjoyed it in my class. I, You know, I was always smart guy, but I I wasn't working hard enough until I got to SMU. And I I think that's really what uh, opened up the possibility for me was just um, seeing that that I might be able to get into a law school.
0: Uh, What made you choose the mergers and acquisition field? Is that something that you're kind of given, um, I guess, different categories of law that you can pick from eventually? Like, how do you get down that path from just, I'm going to law school generically?
2: Well, that is a great, insightful question. So in law school, they really don't teach much in terms of the transactional area. Everything is uh, case law taught, the Socratic method. Whether whether you're taking a contracts class or a civil litigation class, civil procedure, you're learning the... Um, the substantive law through reading cases and reciting the facts of those cases and analyzing them. You're never really reading or editing a contract, so to speak. So, you know, they teach you how to think in law school like a lawyer, and they teach you the fundamental classes that are covered on your state bar exam. To specifically answer your question, I was recruited to a really nice law firm They let us kind of, our first year, work in a few different areas to try to figure this out. I'm just good at connecting people, and I'm extroverted, and I enjoy networking. It was really just the law firm gave me an opportunity, and uh, I had no idea or no background in accounting or finance or anything like that. Um, it, it was not planned.
1: It wasn't planned, but you it was easy, easily adaptable in the sense that, like, it wasn't too much of a stretch. Well, it's like, a
2: it's tremendous crazy. learning curve, but all of this really is, you know. And so, you know, for example, I went to law school in New Jersey, and I took the Texas bar. Well, the one thing I can assure you is that there's no New Jersey law on the Texas bar, <laughs> 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 and so,
1: you know, there, that was an awakening,
2: there. too. Uh, you know, I had basically had 10 weeks to learn everything for the Texas Bar Exam. And so that's kind of how it was for me with corporate law. I didn't have a background in it. I didn't have a background in Texas law either. Um, but I had an interest, and I was trained to think like a lawyer. And, uh, you know... Back then, uh, law firms, there were fewer of them. There was really, truly an apprenticeship program. And so a lot of it had to do with getting a good mentor and working hard. That's just really kind of how it went down for me.
1: So would you say what would you say to yourself then, knowing what you know now, um, what would be the main pieces of advice you'd give to yourself as a 20-year-old? Or someone in your 20s?
2: Well, although I look very youthful, uh, I have been doing this more than 20 years now. So I've mentored a lot of people. I've had a lot of friends, kids go to law school, and, or they're in college, they're thinking what to do. I generally recommend, if someone uh, can and is open to it, that they pursue a joint degree and get a JD, MBA I think if you get a JD, MBA, which adds one year, um, you're set up to do just about anything you would want to do in business or law. Some people go to law school. They don't like law school. And then some people, they become lawyers. They don't want to be lawyers. And they put a lot into it. So I suggest that they do a JD, MBA program if they can and then I suggest that people at least open their minds to the possibility of being a transactional lawyer, and I assure them that they don't need a degree in accounting or finance to be successful in doing that. You know, again, just most lawyers, they don't even think about The fact that they could be a real estate lawyer, intellectual property lawyer, or a finance lawyer, or mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And so all of those are in demand uh, big time, and the the corporate practice is different. You work very hard around, you know, we have closings, and so that's where the intensity happens for us. But, you know, you can usually do the work from anywhere in the world, and you can usually... Anticipate when your busiest periods are going to be.
0: I'm not going to lie, I had that thought um, when I was closing on my house last summer that <laughs> I got into the wrong business. I definitely should have been a real estate lawyer because right. I gave this guy a <laughs> lot of money to talk to him for five minutes <laughs> and just to uh, print off a lot of what I would assume semi standard documents, you know, that's a, and not to dumb it down, don't get me wrong, but I was like, yeah, I definitely should have done that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yes, you probably should have, but the, um, you know, it just depends, right? With with what I do, mergers and acquisitions, you know, we have a form for everything. It, it sounds very generic. It's actually not. Those forms are developed over years for different types of transactions. I guess you could say the same thing about a doctor, right? You know, in the sense that. He or she's trained to do one thing, and they may be taking out your appendix. But once they cut you open, (laughs) all kinds of other things happen, right? And you have to. I'm I'm definitely not suggesting what I do is life or death, but it's significant, you know. I mean, if you screw up the sale of a business and a bunch of lawsuits result, that's not what you want. And that's why you need somebody that really knows what they're doing has a, a lot of experience in M&A, really to kind of eliminate the unexpected. There's always a little bit of unexpected, but there's foreseeable things. The trap that a lot of business owners get in is they, you know, they have lawyers that just need the work. And so they, you know, they don't present it in the way that it might be best really just refer them to a specialist. So... Within larger law firms, you know, we do that all the time, but if you have your own firm or small firm, you might not want to let that work go, and sometimes people should let that work go.
0: Fair enough. Um, So what would be either someone curious about the field or um, someone getting into it, what would you say are some common misconceptions that people have about lawyers who practice uh, in the mergers and acquisitions field?
2: Number one, they believe that you need to have a background in business, you know, a, a degree in business or a degree in accounting, And that's just absolutely not the case. You know, I understand why they think that, and that's what I thought. But as an M&A lawyer, I was taught in my first year that if I see the word tax, I don't even read it. I just go to my tax partner and have him or her read that because there's real consequences. And so, but to your specific question, you know, people should know that we have other specialties within the firm. So if we need to know specific accounting rules, we'll work with the accounting firm that the the company uses or we'll recommend some accounting firms that we've worked with in the past. If it involves tax, we have tax specialists within our firm. So you don't need to be a bean counter or a number cruncher. You know, we negotiate transactions where our clients are making reps and warranties about their business in backstopping that or indemnification clauses to where if they make a rep and it's inaccurate or they breach, you know, there's typically a pool of money from the transaction set aside to satisfy those claims, you know, and helps them negotiate that in the most favorable way. Um, You know, and this is amplified by the fact that even though you do take a basic contracts course in law school, you know, 99% of the focus is on case law. Contracts are negotiable, and by and large, if the parties come to an agreement, we can document that. And it doesn't really matter whether it's ever been done before um, because we don't follow precedent in the way that we do deals. There's terms that are market. Um, And there are documents that are well thought out and well done and documents that are kind of taken off the Internet. I think that people should open their eyes and know that there are opportunities to be a transactional lawyer if that's of interest to them.
1: So there's definitely a large space, as you said. Um, So just to change it up a bit here, if you could practice another field um, in law or even another profession Totally.
2: What would that be? Well, number one, I'd be retired and independently
1: wealthy.
2: That would be number one choice. Um, I
1: love that answer. Number
2: two, I I work a lot in private equity and I, I work with a lot of people that have sold a business. Now they have some money and they see other uh, other businesses that they want to invest in. They'll bring some of their friends into that investment. So they're kind of pooling money. Um, so I've become very skilled and knowledgeable about private equity transactions. I'd probably go into that. I just think it, you know, my background complements it. And, uh, those are the people that really get rich. They, They don't mind, uh, paying some fees as long as their deal closes. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, it's like anything else, you, you know, you need to have equity to uh, to really reap the rewards.
0: So typically speaking, how long do the majority of your cases take to litigate? Like, is it um, quick, easy, or is it something that takes, like, um, months to get to the final process? Right, so
2: the vernacular and... In, in, in my side of the, the transactional side is really closings instead of cases so we you know typically the way it'll work is a business has become profitable there are people that are in the business of sourcing acquisition targets and so they're you know identifying these businesses they're cold calling them in some cases and if they kind of come to an idea that they might want to do a deal, they'll develop a non-binding letter of intent. And that letter of intent will sort of outline what a transaction might look like, what the purchase price would be. Um, you know, it's subject to due diligence of the buyer. But that timeline is usually 60 to 90 days. So that's an intense period. And, you know, we go on the clock and, and, and clients start incurring expenses from our firm at that time. So everyone kind of has a vested interest on staying on the timeline. Sometimes in the due diligence, there'll be some items that are flagged and that need to be addressed. And sometimes that will extend the period. But usually I'm a hired gun for about a 60 to 90 day period. Um, we love to get in before that, you know, for a lot of reasons. One, we can come in on a really cost-effective basis and help prep that company for sale. You know, so that helps the company a lot. And then it helps us to get our foot in the door for when a sizable transaction happens. You know, we're well positioned to get that engagement.
1: Obviously, you work with several different businesses and I'm sure in several industries, but is there in some way different industries that can impact the way that M&A works? Like, does it change your process a bit or is it pretty standard? And do you have like a favorite industry that you tend to work with business-wise?
2: So we have industries that are hot at different periods in time. Um, I would say right now Uh, The defense sector is pretty hot, and I would say right now that the, you know, energy, oil, and gas sector is pretty hot. Now, I will tell you that those areas have not been hot in a while. And yes, Mm -hmm. there's you know, it's almost like a special language. You, you know, one of you mentioned you did a real estate deal. Well, they've got all kinds of, you know, they speak their own language. They tend to want to structure their transactions as asset purchases versus equity purchases. Sometimes that uh, deals with, you know, wanting to avoid potential liabilities of the target. Um, so sometimes they'll just buy all the assets, but they will leave behind the liabilities and you can structure that in certain ways. I do work across multiple industries because I focus on the middle market. So in terms of you know earnings or EBITDA as it's often referred you know my clients tend to be kind of five to, to twenty million dollars of earnings or EBITDA. You know they're sold at a multiple on those earnings so You know, it's kind of like children in a way. You know, what's your favorite? You know, you're you probably do have a favorite, but your answer is always I love them all. Right? And so I kind of do love them all. I, I love the relationship that I'm able to build with my clients in that 60 to 90 day period. It's quite intense for me, it's quite intense for them. They've got to run a business and sell it at the same time. Often that transaction is highly confidential you know only a select small number of people within their organization will know that that may happen and my skill set is just managing that process to a closing so whether it's a defense company or an energy company or a manufacturing company or a medical company I've worked in all those areas multiple times you know if it's a real specialized area where they have their specialized language like oil and gas or real estate then You know, I work in a large, wonderful law firm where we have people with all those different skill sets that speak those languages, and so I'll bring them in as kind of the quarterback, and they'll be uh, on the team.
0: Uh, I just I love the um, football references because I just started getting into it last season, and I was like, I know what that means for once. (laughs) 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 All proud of myself, like yeah, I know the quarterback. it's actually a really funny. Side note on that, uh, we were talking about uh, looking for different sponsors um, or sponsoring opportunities where we could, you know, throw our name in for sporting events, and um, I randomly said the Miami Dolphins, thinking it was hockey. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, I know. My. It was really funny because my coworker called me out very hard for that. He's like, oh, you know, you knew, you knew a football team. Good for you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I meant hockey. Well, I like yeah. where you're going with that, though. <laughs> yes. Nice
2: weather in Miami.
0: You know That's what I was yes. thinking about because I was like, we yeah. could get, you know, the sponsor level tickets, like... Miami, exactly. like let's keep this going. Right. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I was really proud of myself for that, but yeah, I mean, I is. know nothing. I know Roll Tide is Alabama. Oh, that yes, is That is that is it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that thank really you, nice. thank you. Very proud. Um, <laughs> um, just to get back to it, you kind of mentioned um, certain industries are kind of slowing down that were once, I guess, hot for the lack of a better word. Um, would you say that, generally speaking, um, COVID has affected these um, kind of through technology changes or anything in that sort? I realize we're kind of up on on the up and up with that, um, m- being the pandemic's kind of closing, but has that changed anything?
2: It did. It, it really did. For me, it it was a little bit more impactful because... I do work with privately held middle market companies and, you know, they don't go through transactions every day. And so there's a big networking and relationship building aspect to my practice. And, you know, when you shut down the whole world, uh, it makes it quite difficult to network. I always thought my practice was recession proof because, you know, I don't have... The bulk of my business concentrated in one or two clients. And if, you know, in today's world, uh, you know, they'll hire a new general counsel and he or she will have their own favorite law firms. And so you can have a lot of business and then you have no business. You know, I always design my practice to work with a lot of companies. And if one sold, I'm always out looking for more opportunities. But I didn't develop a pandemic uh <laughs> resistant uh, practice. I actually found my partners that work with big companies, they did better during the pandemic because they don't really need a network as much. You know, they work with legal departments. I primarily work with law, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and decision makers. And so Zoom actually enhanced the touch for the law departments and the outside counsel for me, I really just had to wait it out. To be honest with you, it's very frustrating. Um, it has come back a lot. I am very fortunate to be in the great state of Texas, where we still value our liberty. I'm not trying to be political with that, but look, you know that's the reality that was thrust upon us all. We were, you know, able to kind of freely roam, and then the next thing you know, we have to get shots and we have to wear masks and you know i'm not a bad person but i do talk out and speak out and maybe it's the army <laughs> service that i have but uh i found out that um you know if you don't fight for some of these rights you know they'll be lost real quick
0: yeah actually we just got our mask mandate was lifted uh this week on monday and uh I went to the grocery store for the first time no mask and it was weird. <laughs> it was it, it felt was. yeah it, it was felt weird. well two parts. Weird it was like cuz you're like oh wow people have the rest of the other half of their face. So that was kind of interesting <laughs> and uh <laughs> we all look exactly <laughs> and it, my, it was really styles. funny too cuz my fiance was like oh I have to like Shave my beard now! Like I have to deal with this because he just kind of hides it at work, right? Uh, right.
2: It's just That's so. Right.
0: <laughs> it's just yeah. it's like the neck beard has to go. total different
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Right.
0: It's just so uh, weird. Yeah, you
2: know. But. I mean, it's horrible. The whole thing was horrible, and uh, no matter where you are on all the mask or no mask or anything like that, I, I could tell you somebody is probably more on the less. You know, we're really more on the on the uh, civil liberty side, uh, we, we all took it real serious. There's nobody that falls into my camp that, didn't, that doesn't recognize what a tragedy COVID was and is, and it's just a balance, you know, it's, it's a balancing act, and uh, there was some real effort to vilify people that had a different point of view, and I've been around politics enough to know that uh, they don't always tell you the truth. Uh, that can be very, very impactful on somebody's daily life.
1: Definitely. I think we're all happy to see, hopefully, this all behind us and to start kind of fresh and new with a new perspective and things getting back to normal. And I think we definitely have seen different places uh, had different speeds. So we're just lucky that we're, we're on the up and up now and we're, right. and we're moving out Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. Um, to... Cl- Exactly. So to close off, um, to close off this podcast, we're so happy that you were able to join us. Is there anything you would like our listeners to know that we maybe didn't touch on?
2: Well, I think that it's a big year. You know, we've got um, people in our country have probably spent too much time playing around on the internet and not enough time over the last couple of decades thinking about you know what it means to be American, what it what uh, other people's perspective of that is. And so I'm hoping that we can, you know, get back to those kind of thoughts and build, you know, the American exceptionalism and strength that may, you know, that really the world has relied on. But I've really enjoyed talking about my favorite thing, which is, you know, mergers and acquisitions. And, you know, hopefully uh, people enjoy listening and I sure appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, definitely. We're happy to have you on. And uh, one thing I guess to say too is uh, as a millennial, I am really sick of living through historical events. <laughs> like I'm really I'm really over
2: this, <laughs>
0: like, you <Yes>. know.
2: <laughs> I can only imagine. you all, you know, there's some people that have never, you know, chilled. There's some children that have never gone to school without a mask. You know, it impacts generations of people.
1: Definitely does. Uh, I think we'll only start to see that as time carries itself on to be able to see potentially what the repercussions of what everybody had gone through in these last two two and a half years but yes we are so happy to have you on we definitely discussed loads of topics of in terms of your industry and getting to know you a bit more so we're super excited that we were able to do that and thank you for joining thank us you so much have a great day